Hi, I'm Jack Carrington, and this week's React Roundup, we have Colby Fayak joining us, and of course, the awesome Paige Niederinghaus. Hey, everybody. All right. Hey, Colby. How you doing? How's it going? Thanks for having me on here. Happy to yeah. be here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This is a multiple time for you. This is awesome. Good to see you again. Good to see you all as well. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So what brought you around to the our, our attention was an article that you posted on Medium about CSS properties. So let's let's start there and then see where the conversation goes. For sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of awesome stuff you can do with CSS properties. And it's really, it seems like a long time coming. And there's finally kind of getting to a place where they're super usable. But I think one of the trickier things uh, from my experience with kind of poking around with them is how can we make them play nicely with some of the existing tools we're using, um, like JavaScript or React, right? So where the article kind of steps in is how we can, well, particularly how can we access that information and how can we update that information uh, from within a React application? So when we're talking about CSS variables, we're talking about like kind of like less SaaS kind of things, like you define a constant like, theme color, and then you can use it wherever you want. Yeah, kind of, except since okay. they're kind of native to the, I mean, really, it's uh, the same basic concept, right? But since they're baked into the browser, it has a lot more capabilities to it, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. where you can do things like update them, as I was kind of alluding to, where, you know, that means you can totally create your entire layout using the variables just like you normally would, but then you can easily tweak things based off of somebody's uh, personal experience, right? So it's, it gives you a lot more flexibility when building these pages uh, based off of those properties. So do these properties work with like styled components or is it more of like a straight CSS file or SCSS or one of those pre-processed or post-processed versions of CSS? So that's a good question. So since they are native to the browsers, they're kind of, imagine like if you're just put, putting together native CSS in a file, but I have used it to kind of mesh together the SAS and uh, native CSS world, where what I've done is maybe I'll define a, a SAS variable with that custom property. That way I can use the SAS variable through all the other interesting things I want to do with it in the code. But then ultimately it bubbles to that custom property that everything's based off of and where I can still have that same flexibility of managing it inside of JavaScript if I want. But really they're kind of two separate concepts, but you can definitely use them together and they can definitely play nicely. Nice. So how, awesome. Yeah. How does it play with React? Tell me a little bit about that though. So from my experience with it in React, uh, it's because React is its own 
kind of separate thing where <laughs> it's like managing its own state and stuff. Um, and you kind of sometimes have to hack into the window, right? Uh, so that's kind of my been my experience with it, where doing things like setting or updating the values, you'd probably want to do so inside like a use effects uh, hook, where you can have access to maybe a ref or really grabbing that information to uh, be able to update it inside the browser itself. But then you can keep that kind of stuff in state to make sure things are keeping, you know, the values that you want are maintained in state the React way, but really making sure that it's all kind of bubbling up to one source of truth. So how do you do that? How do you change? Like, I, I have not actually played with this at all. How do you actually change one of these variables in JavaScript? Yeah, so it's kind of similar to what you expect from a, it's using JavaScript in in order to do that, where there's a particular method, uh, get computed style, where you can uh, grab the document element and actually grab the property value so that you mm. can access that information. Maybe similar, but not, but imagine the concept of using like document query selector or something if you want to grab an element. Okay. Um, but then on the other side, um, kind of similar to how you would set styles naturally, where you might do like the element dot style, you could set the property the same way, but instead you would chain on the set property uh, where you would then set the name of the property you want to actually update and then the value yeah. of that property. So it's it's pretty baked in to like the natural things of how we typically use JavaScript in the browser. Cool. So Colby, what what inspired you to start learning about this or to, to write about it, mm -hmm. I guess? Have you had a chance to use it in your own projects or in your work? I think the inspiration for me was really just I wanted to learn more about it. And as I was learning about it and the different uh, pain points that I've noticed between my own work with things like React is how can I help other people get past those pain points as well? And admittedly, I haven't used it in any kind of massive uh, project that I've worked on or uh, professionally or anything, but I still have a lot of fun with how I can actually bridge those two worlds together. I'm still personally most of the time working directly in SAS instead of kind of bridging those worlds, but there's a lot of cool things you can do with them. And I feel like they're just going to keep becoming more uh, prevalent as time goes on, especially I'm not sure if you're familiar with Adam Argyle, but he has a cool project called Open Props, where, again, I haven't used this, but people rave about it, where it's basically a design, I believe it's a design system based off of custom properties, which is really Ooh. cool. Nice. I think I've heard about that recently. So that's really awesome. But I'm I'm with you. I'm still using SAS. I'm really a big fan of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Subatomic styles. This sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of sibilance in that statement. <laughs> right, right. No, I, but the people who have used it so far, just friends of mine, have said that it's amazing. So I'm, I'm excited to eventually get to it. But it's just another one of those things on my list of to do. Right? Yeah, I think this is kind of the the opposite of tailwind from what I've heard a little bit. People talk about you know you jam more and more classes into your components for tailwind to right. use its styling, and I think this is a little bit kind of like the other end of the spectrum, which. I, I am in favor of because I'm not a Tailwind fan personally. Yeah. I mean, I, I respect what it does and like it's a, <laughs> definitely a cool solution. But yeah, I, it's just it's not my cup of tea either. Oh, man. It's like, are you a big Tailwind one fan? Two on one here. <laughs> um, am I a Tailwind fan? I uh, OK, so I just did a big uh, solid JS project and that was the only thing I they had no like out of the box component solution. You know, there's nothing like material. So, yeah, using Tailwind was like, awesome in that context because it just helped me out a lot. But, yeah, if I got, like, material, that sort of stuff, then I'd just use that. Especially, like, MUI 5 has, like, SX nowadays. So the SX property is just awesome, you know. Oh, I want a little extra padding. Just 
go on. And that's kind of what I was using for Tailwind anyway. So Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I really enjoy writing my CSS in my separate file and having like the actual, uh, you know, typical de- declarations and everything. Is there yeah. any kind of scoping in this? Uh, or is with, it just like all uh, global? Custom properties? Uh, yeah, the, the CSS properties stuff. Yes, there is scoping. I'm okay. not an expert as to how that works, but there definitely <laughs> no, is cool. scoping, no, uh, which, right. you know, takes it to That's another level of the flexibility of things, right? Because if you want to scope it to a particular element set, then you're having more control as to how you're actually being able to leverage that. Yeah, it makes reuse a lot easier for sure. Well, you know, it makes reuse a thing as opposed to not, yeah. <laughs> not a thing. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Yeah, I've been using CSS modules lately and really mm. enjoying the amount of detail you can get into, I guess, in terms of scoping it, even if you're oh, yeah. using the same style sheet for various different components. It's pretty cool. So that's awesome to hear that it gives you that same level of granularity. Do you use SAS with your CSS modules? I do. Same, yeah. I, I've been working <laughs> in Next.js a lot, and that's where I've particularly been using it. And yeah, I, I've Me been having too. a lot of fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, before this, I was actually not as much of a fan of having like a bucket, a folder bucket of all my different files. But now that's entirely how I organize it with the SAS modules. And I love it. Mm-hmm. Just one styles folder and then all the all the styling modules <laughs> go inside of it. It's great. <laughs> OK, OK. It's clear that I'm stuck in a conversation with two CSS fans. So <laughs> let me act as CSS newbie here and say and ask, like, if I'm a, if I am a reactive and I'm like, OK, you know, I want to go and, you know, learn a little bit more about CSS. What is a good entry point in 22, 2022, starting right now? How do I learn CSS? Ooh, that's a big one. Well, one one thing that I would say is to get familiar with CSS Flexbox and CSS Grid because those are going to those are going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you in terms of actually getting the layout that you want and is they've come so far since the times of floats and just kind <laughs> of, yeah <laughs> oh yeah in terms of other stuff i don't know i mean there's so many resources out there css tricks is fantastic if you want to mm-hmm. really deep dive into particular topics but i would say just start trying to mock up websites that look like layouts that you really like, whether that's from a designer or from an existing website, and just start learning that way, because there's so much to learn. I think that's and, a great point. Yeah, brilliant idea. Actually, I like yeah. to learn is by doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the things I like to do is go to like Dribble and try mm-hmm. to, you know, take just something that looks cool and try to recreate it in code, right? Because it's just ultimately practicing what you're doing. But um, you mentioned CSS. It's amazing how CSS tricks, like even from when I was starting to develop, to develop like it's, st- become, it's still like such an awesome resource for everything. I know mm-hmm. Flexbox in particular, like that's the holy grail of information for where you can learn about how to use Flexbox. And yeah. um, speaking of like grid, I don't know if you've seen from uh, Uma the the single page, la- uh, what is it? Single line layouts or something like that. I'll, I'll post the link in the show notes, but it's an amazing resource where put together all these different layouts using just very, when I say simple, I just mean like only a few lines of code. I'll post it in the chat here right now. But it's, it's amazing what you can do with uh, Grid and Flexbox that took so much code and effort and hackiness to be able to accomplish <laughs> in the past. <laughs> I think I have seen those one-line layouts. It's It's been a while, but I remember hearing about them and being amazed at how simple it's gotten compared to some of the things that we used to have to do as web developers. 
Absolutely. I, I always Google that just to, because I forget how to, sometimes I forget the syntax. Of, we all do, right? <laughs> um, and it's a great resource for being able to just simply grab some of those simpler grids. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And if you're looking for like a course or something that's kind of more all-encompassing and less self-directed learning, I know that Josh Komu came out with a fantastic one. I think it's called CSS for JS Developers. So it's really targeted towards people who are good at React or Angular or Vue, but don't have that. They have that love-hate relationship with CSS where sometimes it does what you want and other times it just does not. And he, I mean, the course is really, really extensive and he really deep dives into a lot of things that even I, feeling pretty confident and happy with CSS in general, had no idea about. So his stuff is really, really good. And he does a whole lot of his own custom elements and, mm. you know, ways to learn with interactive tutorials and quizzes and all sorts of stuff along the way. So if you really want a large breadth of knowledge around CSS, I would say that his is a fantastic way to, to get going with it. I haven't taken the course myself, but I, I've heard a lot about it and I saw a lot of his progress up to creating it. And it's amazing the time and effort he put into trying to create like a more educational experience rather than just dumping the content in there. It's, it's really, it was really cool to see like his thought process going to everything. So um, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Yeah, it's nice yeah, when, they, I, when they go out and do that, you know. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, he think took about like how a learn. year a oh, year wow. plus to probably build it. And I was one of the early subscribers and I still have only gone through like a couple of the modules because time and energy, but I'm excited to go back to it and to continue the, the learning journey. Okay, let, 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 let's get that in the show notes because that's something I'm, I'm probably going to buy that. <laughs> that sounds really good. But I got to say, I, I love, Paige, I love your idea about, about building something up. But you know, it's like, it's one of those things where folks, there's two ways to learn. Like, you know, like people get like a radio when they're a kid and they're like, oh, I want to see how that works. And they, they pull it apart. I mean, yeah, there's mm-hmm. an, another way to do it. You know, as opposed to building a radio from scratch, you could take an existing radio and break it down. And you basically just yeah. kind of take an existing example, like on Code Sandbox or whatever, and just start, just mm-hmm. literally start taking out the CSS until it starts to break. And you're like, oh, so that's what controls that. Oh, I see. It's absolute position. Oh, it's this, it's that. <laughs> And that's yeah, definitely a good debugging method great. that I use all the time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're just <laughs> going to like the inspector and just like use a little checkbox. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. no. Take take that off. Take that off. What, when, what does it break? I do do that <laughs> so much. I change so many variables in the browser and then we'll just copy the CSS and paste it into my own style sheet to make it look the same. It's amazing the CSS tooling generally that we have today. Mm-hmm. I I do that so often where I'll style the entire thing right inside of the dev tools and then copy it. Mm-hmm. It's, it makes it so much quicker and that feedback loop is so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing you can, I guess, well, another thing you should do is once you get it working, just make sure that like you disable stuff again until it, it until it stops working because I know, you know, like, oh, I added some padding, but that didn't do it. I added, then I added some margin and that did do it. And it's like, but the padding is still there. And it's like, wait, okay, if the padding wasn't doing anything for you, get rid of it. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you know, keep it like, like JavaScript, you know, just keep it, keep it tight. Yeah. I've done that Absolutely. plenty of times too. Change 15 variables and then you can't <laughs> figure out which one actually. Which one did it again? <laughs> it was a combination of two <laughs> somewhere in there. <laughs> so Colby, tell us, I mean, besides these projects, I remember the last time we had you on, you had been working on some open source stuff for people to kind of level up their web development skills. Are you doing any sorts of those things now for people who are interested? 
Yeah, so I haven't done any projects specifically dedicated to that general idea where I think last time we talked, I had my 50 React projects, uh, which is just a bunch of project ideas. But I've been more so lately dedicating the time to like courses with particular uh, goals in mind. So uh, whether it's building an e-commerce store. And Mm. aside from that, I've been doing a bunch of like YouTube videos and articles, which the articles mainly where the source of this chat came from. But yeah, uh, really more so the focus stuff. But I I do eventually want to try to do some more broad uh, materials like that. Just haven't haven't had a spark that has come to me yet for something like that. Are you a full-time content creator? (laughs) i'm a developer so i'm a i'm a developer experience engineer on the devrel team at cloudinary and so like kind of because like part of my work is content creation to you know help people learn how to use the tools but i wouldn't say i'm a full-time content creator because you know there's a bunch of other stuff that goes along with that so like kind of sort of but not really okay so for (laughs) for your manager's sake this morning so, so for the folks that don't know, what is Cloudinary and, and what, what can I do for them? Give you your time to plug it here. Sure, sure. Here we go. So uh, Cloudinary <laughs> is a media platform that handles everything from the actual management of the media assets themselves to delivering the assets. And there's a lot of cool things that go along with that. So when you're delivering the assets, you can transform the assets, whether that's simply resizing it or automatically compressing or changing the format of the image or video. Just a lot of cool things about how you can manage it. So makes it useful from the designer all the way up to the developer into the browser. That's yeah, you awesome. can go take so it. Yeah. What do you get to do as like a developer experience engineer? Because I know that that runs the gamut depending on what company you're oh, working yeah. for and who you talk to. Yeah, so my my time's kind of split between currently my time's split between maintaining a project called MediaJams.dev, which is a publication that talks specifically about media and cool use cases around that. So that's, you know, doing the front-end engineering, working alongside of other people on that project. But aside from that, you know, it's the content creation, trying to help people learn things. I also try to put together proof of concepts, integrations, just based off the things that I would find interesting. Like I I put together a Netlify Cloudinary plugin. Still a little bit of a work in progress, but it's it's been a lot of fun kind of seeing where there's gaps and where people are actually trying to use these things and how it can come in and create an integration um, or proof of concept with it. So if I've got images or video and Cloudinary could just be the place where I just put those, like as I used to put them maybe in S3, now I'm going to put them over in Cloudinary and I can put some cool like URL extender on it and say, hey, this is for this breakpoint point or this is, you know, like this is a source set for an image or something like that and get like really nice responsive images. Cool. For sure. And that's a, that's like, that's a simpler use case, right? There's so much you can Ooh. do on top of that, but it's <laughs> one of the more compelling use cases, right? Because simply the starting point. Right. Simply being able to store your images and deliver them to like people who know what they're doing with media delivery and then being able to have those uh, those transformations like the resizing. And one of my favorite uh, features is the automatic. uh, There's parameters you can add for like automatic uh, quality and automatic formatting where for the quality, it'll compress it to a point where it's not visually human distinguishable. Um, So it'll do its best to compress it. But then on top of that, it'll also deliver Uh, image formats or media formats dependent on the browser for what it supports. So, for instance, if the browser supports AVIF and that's the best resulting image for that particular media, it'll serve that. Otherwise, if it doesn't support AVIF, you know, it'll be WebP or JPEG, basically whatever the best, you know, lowest file size or best result is for that browser, it'll serve, which is really cool. Nice. 
That's awesome. So one thing that I noticed, because I'm looking at your website now, is that you have a lot more than just the CSS article that we were talking about. Where do you... Where do you come up with a lot of your ideas? And also, how do you find the time to write about them? Also having a full-time job and doing some courses on the side. And it sounds like a whole lot of other stuff in the background. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was just one of the many articles uh, that I've put together. And in terms of like idea generation, I just working through my day-to-day work, like with whether people are asking me questions or things I noticed that might be tricky or interesting uh, use case topics, I'll kind of just jot down a huge list of ideas. And then I'll see at the beginning of the week, what's kind of inspiring me for the week. Because if I try to force myself to write on a particular topic, it's I feel like I'm not going to go anywhere on it. But if something like sparks my interest and really gets me just kind of writing it, it makes it so much easier. So that's in terms of like time management, uh, it, it kind of depends on what it is. So if it's something more like a sponsored piece, I'll typically try to work that, carve that time out on the side during my own free time, whether that's on the weekend or maybe a little bit at night. Otherwise, a lot of it, like the cloudinary work, I'll be doing as part of my full-time job. So I'll be able to work on that as part of what I'm doing to help people learn about cloudinary. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I think it's a great idea. You know, if you're working a full-time job and you have as like a Jira ticket, hey, go and do such and such, like figure out a good way to store media in the cloud. Just find a good service, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) You can, after you've done your research, write a Medium article on it. I mean, assuming it's not IP, Right. And then you can use that medium article at work. You can say, oh, cool. You know, this is what I came up with, blah, blah, blah. And it gives you a lot of good beneficial, like gives your name out there. But it also gives you a way to structure that content, you know, and and learn about how to teach people things. It's great. And honestly, teaching it helps me learn it better, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I I find a lot of inspiration in the same way that you do. It's stuff that I learn at work on the job. And I'm writing a piece right now about how to unit test API routes for Next.js because there is not a lot of good articles out there. We found out ourselves trying to unit test some of our own stuff. So that's exactly it. You just find gaps in the knowledge or things that, you know, were really difficult to figure out. But once you've got it, then you've got an entire piece right there. Definitely. And while it's still fresh on your mind, it makes it easy to kind of teach yes. what where you had, like what you had to learn in order to do it. So it helps you emphasize or empathize. I might empathize <laughs> with, with trying to teach it to other people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can be able to think about the, the world from their perspective, from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know, and then kind of lay it out. It's it's storytelling, really, honestly, at the end of the day. You know, you're trying to impart a story about how to get something done, how to unit test API routes, which, by the way, 
page. It, once you put out that article, please let us know. And we'll have you on <laughs> as a guest on React Roundup. But because <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind knowing myself. How did you end up doing it, by the way? Was it the MSW or something? No, I actually found a, a library called NodeMox HTTP. Hmm. And what it lets you do is actually mock the requests and responses that would go through a node server, which is what uh, Next.js uses under the hood for all of its API calls. So you can actually, you would use what would be the real URL for that endpoint, but you just change what's going out in the request and then what's coming back in the response. And you can verify that way that you're getting the correct errors or the right responses of 200 yeah. and various things like that. So it Rocket. wasn't, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm really used to using Axios and Express and things like that for most of my API calls. So it took a couple of days of fiddling and trying different packages to kind of finally figure out this was the the best way to do it. But once we had that, then it, it, everything was smooth sailing. But it's just getting over that initial, why is there no documentation on this? And why <laughs> hasn't anybody figured it out up till now? <laughs> I don't know. I've always felt like testing is one of those things where sometimes the configuration is the biggest bear to kind of... Oh, yeah. Them, but. But it's so satisfying once you can have those tests running smoothly and mm -hmm. uh, be able to easily set those up and you know provide so much coverage for that. But the configuration is just sometimes a nightmare. Yeah, code coverage is my best and worst thing at work. It seems like the tests take twice as long as writing the actual code sometimes. <laughs> right, right, right. You can definitely get into a world where you want to have like 100% code coverage, though. And that that's not always a good thing. Like 80% is stuff. like, well, I think you can get there if you push hard enough. The problem is you're kind of like putting amber around the code. Because at that point, mm -hmm. like the code can hardly move without <laughs> breaking a test, you know. And it's like, oh, is that really what we want? You know, do we really need to, you know, test this component, you know, that renders something? Like, no, man. Well, like, and especially when you have something, when you're using something like TypeScript, a lot of the errors hmm. that you could have encountered in a test are not going to happen because TypeScript will keep you from ever passing a number when it's a string is expected or for making a wrong HTTP call when you say only get is the the only accepted method. So, you know, you can still write tests for those, and I tend to just because. But a lot of those scenarios just aren't going to happen when you have something like TypeScript kind of putting extra guardrails around your code to begin with. Yeah. We were on the same team with SAS, but I can't say that I've hopped on the TypeScript chain yet. <laughs> what? Oh, oh, okay. Now it's a two-on-one. Now it's now it's Paige and Jack against Colby. TypeScript, what? Yeah. Just, I'm I kind think. of in the middle still. I'm oh, still in the shoot. learning. Dang it. The learning and getting okay. happy to use TypeScript. And in most cases, I still am. But it's been probably just the last couple of months that I've really started to get into it because we've been writing a new application using TypeScript. So I have no choice but to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. You know, like I, I can conceptualize all the benefits like that people talk about. It, it does sound amazing. I don't know. It's just uh, something I think the syntax scares me too much. And I just haven't really taken that time to dive in yet. But also from like an educator's standpoint, I've kind of steered away from it only because I didn't want to overcomplicate some of my articles like i don't want to just jam typescript it to everything and that's Agreed. another barrier somebody would have to get over in order to learn mm -hmm. i've actually recently done javascript videos I, I was doing typescript exclusively there for a little bit and i think that actually mm -hmm. reduced the market size because there are folks who are like it, it's interesting it's like it's like uh javascript folks will 
well, TypeScript folks will gladly watch an article or read an article on JavaScript and then be like, oh, I can add the types later. Yeah. You know, sure. whereas JavaScript folks are like, oh, I don't know. They, they start adding those this? types. So what is all that gobbledygook in there? Or like, <laughs> give me back my JavaScript. Yeah, I've, I've been so confused over the syntax. And again, you know, I'm sure if I spent the time to learn it, it, it would be wonderful. But it's just, you know, looking out from an outsider's perspective, it's just it can be overwhelming. Mm hmm. Have you used any strongly typed languages before, Colby, like Java or yes? <laughs> no, I haven't. No. Um, I, I've i really, like, I started off with PHP way back when, just because I was oh, yeah. in uh, WordPress land. But then, you know, I was kind of at that breaking point where JavaScript was really taking off, and I just caught on that wave, and it's I've been JavaScript ever since. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to to start with JavaScript, and I think it's great as a an earlier career developer in that to start and just use plain JavaScript because you'll hit all sorts of error cases, any, you know, TypeScript or no. But one of the things that I've figured out from TypeScript is that knowing JavaScript well makes it easier to get into. It's a lot easier to mm -hmm. say, oh, I, I know that this is going to throw an undefined. So if I just put an if statement around this and check that it exists, then TypeScript will be happy. So, you know, knowing the how the JavaScript language works underneath makes it, I think, a lot easier to get familiar with TypeScript or to understand some of the errors and warnings that it starts to give you basically from minute one when you install it. <laughs> that makes sense. And I've, I don't know where I've read it, but I read that like eventually they're hoping to bring some of those features native and the developers of TypeScript, aren't they trying to keep it as close to JavaScript yes. as possible because of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jo uh, TypeScript never diverges very far from what JavaScript is. And there, I think there are some like, I think null, like a null coalescing operator, like sounds awesome, but it's just it's the two question marks. Yes. Um, as opposed to the two pipes. I think that that went from TypeScript back to JavaScript. Uh, if I'm not, not mistaken. So there's those little, little, little things like that. I don't know if, if JavaScript will ever get enums, but enums are kind of controversial anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they try and track pretty close. Yeah. Yes. It seems like I've always wondered most... if it'll be the way of jQuery, where not to not to like compare it in <laughs> that kind of way, right? But you know how like features from jQuery were slowly pulled into native JavaScript in their own way. Like I, I've always wondered if TypeScript will kind of be the same way, where we'll just eventually inherit all the features and then it'll just kind of dissolve. But you know, that's just where my mind goes with it. I mean, very yeah. possibly. It seems like they've done a lot of that with Lodash as well. They just took all the most useful functions out of that library and have added them to native JavaScript, which is awesome. Yeah. It's crazy to think that like jQuery, the name is is about query, right? And it, it, was, it was literally because like the early browsers didn't have a <laughs> query selector in JavaScript, mm -hmm. which is it would now when you think about it, like document dot you know, queries like, oh, whatever. That didn't exist, you know? So yeah. we actually had to have a library to go do that, which is insane. Of and of course, <laughs> of course you're going to get that. Like, that's just a clear oversight from the browser. And then there's <laughs> fetch. We didn't have a, a unified fetch. We had like XML, HTTP request. And mm -hmm. I can't remember what the other one was on Netscape. It was, it was awful, right? And so that was basically all the jQuery did was like the document selector and fetch. That's all, yeah. And it was amazing. Like, it was oh, yeah. absolutely amazing. Still, it rules the web. My God. Yeah, it still yeah. does. Oh, yeah. It's way more used than React. Way more used. WordPress sites and jQuery. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. I always forgot that it's single. Yeah, so that's by default. Yeah. <laughs> Gets a large yeah. user base. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, that's a huge user base. 
So Colby, how did you how did you end up coming to Cloudinary? Because I believe that you were not there the last time we spoke with you. Sure, and I, I forget which uh, I was honestly at my last uh, company for a short period of time, so I can't remember where I was last time. But so I came from a company called Applet Tools, which is actually a testing company. It's visual testing where mm. uh, they'll take snapshots of your website or application and uh, compare those visually. And that's how they can provide metrics around it with like AI and stuff. But I I wasn't really super interested in the testing world and not because I don't think it's important, but it's I just wasn't really passionate about teaching it. So I was, I've been in chats with uh, Cloudinary and uh, it finally worked out where I was able to join their team. And I I'm really enjoying because Cloudinary is an awesome product. And so it makes it fun to want to help teach people and, you know, generally learn new features myself. But it's it's been a lot of fun and you can incorporate media in so many different ways and fits perfectly with my Next.js work that I was already doing. So mm-hmm. I've been having a blast with it and helping people learn about it. Do you get to co- talk to any cool companies? So I think when I was at Nike, I think we used Cloudinary. So that's always fun to like, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't get to, talk to them like i'm not on the like uh client facing side of it Uh, Um, but if there was a developer that was talking about it like in public like i would happily help them out right but i don't don't really interface with the clients internally Um, but yeah there's a lot of really cool companies using it and doing some really cool things with it it's it's a lot of fun so how does it and you you mentioned that you did some stuff with netlify have you done have you done anything with like next.js and cloudinary is there any nice really connection point there Good plugins. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Next.js has an image component that you mm. are able to use. It has a Cloudinary loader. Um, mm. Typically, I don't use the image component, though, when I'm using Cloudinary because I, I pre- personally prefer just to go right directly to the uh, to the Cloudinary CDN rather than having that kind of intermediary uh, hop there. But yeah, tools like Netlify, what I did with the plugin is it'll go through the output in the Netlify build, and it'll replace all the images with cloudinary links so that you're automatically getting optimization on all those images. And it can, you know, if you're not optimizing into your images, that can be a huge win for performance on a, on a website. I'm trying to uh, take that further because we all know with the React and client-side routing, it can get a little tricky with those types of things because as soon as the page changes, uh, you lose all of that from the DOM because it's only on the static output um, oh, to right. that first page yeah. load. So I'm trying to also capture the images to redirect them to Cloudinary URLs, which I've had some good success with. But um, basically trying to figure out how I can have comprehensive coverage and provide those optimization benefits. So did you actually hack the DOM after like the page loads and you're like, okay, let me go look for any image tags. Hack, hack, hack. So I do that during the build process. Uh, but oh, yeah, okay. pretty much. Uh, wow. Uh, I use JS Rockin. DOM. Uh, Woo! Yeah, I, okay. I use JS DOM, which makes that really easy uh, because yeah. it basically... Yeah it puts into a tree of all the uh, elements and I can just go through and look at the source. And because what it does is uh, if you have like a remote URL in there, I can use the Cloudinary API to just kind of append that to the end of the link and it automatically serves that image from Cloudinary. Or if, uh, if it's a local image, I'll just grab whatever that final URL will be from Cloudinary, or I'm sorry, from Netlify. And similarly, I'll just append that to the end and then it's served from Cloudinary. And the, the website's really none the wiser because it's really just oh, yeah. changing that delivery mechanism. And it's doing it in a pretty much safe way since JS DOM is able to safely parse that. So does that work on server-side calls, like get server-side props or get static props? So that's a great question. I don't, 
it's only really at this point in time on that build process. So it's only, it's literally only doing the HTML output uh, mm -hmm. for that image replacement. Now for the redirecting, what I'm doing is I'm capturing anything under the images directory to start where I'm going to make it so it's customizable if you don't like to have your images in the image directory. But that way, anything in that directory will be redirected to a Cloudinary uh, URL with that asset. That way um, you'll have that redirect jump but if you're going from an unoptimized image, even with that jump, you're still going to get tremendous, potentially tremendous benefits from having the optimization. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, I work for cloud. <laughs> yeah. like, um, consider large uncompressed images that are getting started, yeah. like PNGs. Like some people don't even think about how that works in their website. And that's really natively impacting people's experience. Oh, gosh, that's like every recipe website and blog oh, I've yeah. ever been to with those <laughs> massive, beautiful images. But All I don't right. care that you took 18 images of eggs. It's like, I want to get to the recipe and right, these pop-ups right. and these images are just making the page jank like mad. So What? Good. You don't care about images of eggs? Really? No. Oh man! I don't care about That's your artfully displayed is. final baked good. I just want to <laughs> see the recipe. The story of how they got to how they got the eggs. <laughs> yes. Right. Oh, and yes, please, please embed the the recipe in the image as like rendered text. <laughs> please, thank you so much for that. You got to make it Pinterest friendly. Oh god. Oh. Don't even, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, just to get back to their, that, your idea for a second, not to geek out too much, but you could probably do it as middleware, like have it so that like right in the last part of the chain, like you just kind of pull out, oh, I got some HTML here. I'm going to tweak that. So my, yeah, so my hope and plan is to try to create a, a Vercel plugin off of this too. Ooh. So I haven't gotten to that point yet, but that's kind of the idea that I was thinking is like during that process, because I don't think it's really that heavy of a process to actually go through there. And especially if you're using uh, incremental static regeneration with Next.js, where you know, mm. it's going to be cached afterwards anyways, it's really not going to put too much work on it. And ultimately, you're going to be saving Again, saving with image like uh, optimization, right? So, a lot of testing to make sure that it is indeed saving. But yeah, that's that's a great point and kind of what I was thinking. And it's maybe not something you ever want to take into production. But if you just want to go and say, okay, cool, how do I, how much would it save for us to go with Cloudinary? What would our you know let's do our ED tests after a Cloudinary build and see how long page refreshes are, what the Lighthouse score does, or whatever. Yeah, you, you drop in this this plugin. And then boom, you got Cloudinary. And it's like, oh, wow, that actually did take a big hit. And now let's actually do it yeah. for realsies, you know? Yeah. No, and I mean, I, I definitely think it is something that you can use for production um, just because, like, the idea is that it makes it so so easy just to install and get that blanket coverage. That said, I would certainly recommend that you would integrate Cloudinary <laughs> at, more, like, at a level closer to your code if you're so yeah. serious about using it, because then you have a lot of cool options on top of that with like the different transformations and um, especially responsive images, which you were kind of talking about earlier, Jack, where you can have those different sizes based and, you know, have the, what is the syntax, where you can actually specify the like responsive the image yeah, the image yeah. and like have the different sizes based off of what the size of the browser is. And that's really powerful, right? Because especially for mobile devices uh, where they might not have a lot of bandwidth, like it's right. important that we serve as, serve as small of an image as we can. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, at uh, Nike, I remember that the team that did the work with Cloudinary was also the team that gave us the responsive image component, right? So they're basically, hey, we're going to do kind of both sides of this. You as a developer, 
just just use our image component and we'll just mm-hmm. hide all that from you. You just yeah. tell us what product, what product, what shoe, right, what, right. what what angle <laughs> do you want on that? And we'll just do it. Nice. Yeah. And the nice thing is because it can be as part of that automated as part of that code process, the people who are actually managing the content don't need to think about it. Because right. you know, sometimes like you'll have where the request is that you optimize the image before you upload it to the CMS, right? And while that works, it's not scalable. And being able to have it programmatically happen is that way it helps everybody's workflow. Oh, yeah. It's just so, a lot of work. So do you have like a developer tier of Cloudinary if people wanted to try it out but aren't ready to commit big bucks to it or wanted to just try it with like a hobby project or something? Absolutely. There's a pretty generous free tier. And I say generous, not from my perspective, but I've, like, I've been told by a lot of people it's a generous <laughs> free tier. So um, I'm not just saying that. because like you're such that. a sales uh, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, like you can definitely have a lot of fun with it. And for a lot of personal sites, you could probably get away with the free tier before having to have any costs. And there's a lot of cool things you can do, even if it's just simply using that automatic optimization, which as simple as it is, is so compelling. Yeah. Are there any cool like AI features? And not, not if they're not, that's cool too. But like, you know, like center the person's face or whatever. Or I'm not sure if you're asking this because you know the answer or. Oh, like, I don't know. I know. To- I, I honestly <laughs> don't know. So there's definitely, there's different aspects of this, which I I think is awesome. And there's totally more to come to. But one of the features of the image transformations of cropping is you can set what's called a gravity. And that's basically where the the origin of that crop is going to be. And Hmm. you can set it to face where it's going to detect the face and it's going to crop it based off of that, which is really cool. I have a tutorial on my website about that. But (laughs) Then okay. getting even further into that, you they have add-ons, you know, beyond uh, Cloudinary's own AI stuff, which they're I think they're constantly working on more features. But another thing you can do is I made a tutorial where you can use Google's Vision AI and automatically tag all of your images. So just for instance, like I in I, it's another tutorial I did, but you can walk through and upload pictures of space, and it'll tell you that there's a planet in the in the picture or a mountain. A picture of a mountain, and it'll show you that there's a mountain. So you can have all these. Wait, does Cloudinary do that, or does Google Vision do that? Because you just mentioned like, Google Vision does that, right? But okay, that, that part. does okay. have its own AI capabilities. Okay, um, right, right. it just it runs it through that Google Vision through that API as it's uploading. Cool. Well, yeah. So if I have like an avatar upload and I want to show the little circle thing, like everybody does nowadays, you know, that's going to go and center the person's face in the middle of the avatar. Assuming oh, it's sure. a face. Yeah. That's that's separate from the Google tagging. Right, yeah. That's just but that just happens automatically. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. That's really neat. Yeah. Man, All I right. think this has turned into almost a sponsored uh, episode for Cloudinary without us meaning to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no intent to just sit here and plug away. But it's Nothing. see, like that's what that's what makes this uh job fun. Like there's a lot of cool things about Cloudinary and it's just been a blast trying to myself learn all the different features and then teach people about it. Well, and as front-end developers, I mean, this is a huge part of our job, whether we want it to be or not. So having services like this that can do a lot of the heavy lifting for us just makes our jobs easier. Absolutely. Well, it's just a big part of what we do. I mean, mm-hmm. forms and images. I mean, these are two of the big <laughs> things in the web, basically. That's a great point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'll have to let them know they should come out with the forms I mean, Yeah, Right. You should just acquire React Hook form or Formic. <laughs> Yeah, like have it be yeah go. everything you like eighty percent of what you need to build an app. There you go. <laughs> All right, should we do picks? Yeah, let's do picks. Okay. All right, hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So, Paige, you want to start us off on our picks this week? Sure. So I will give everybody a new show to watch. If any of you are familiar with Paramount TV, they have a really popular one called Yellowstone. And mm. it's about cowboys, but kind of in the modern era. And now they have a spinoff of it, which is called 1883. And that is how the family that is the main family in Yellowstone got to Montana, I think is where they're actually located. So, you know, it follows settlers in 1883, right after the Civil War and everything that happened then kind of making their way on the Oregon Trail to eventually end up there. And it's, I mean, it's a good old-fashioned Western. There's there's oxen and carts and, you know, <laughs> people are losing wheels and getting cholera. <laughs> and die, yes. Yeah, and there's Indians and cattle rustlers. I mean, it's just, so if you like Westerns and drama and really just gorgeous pictures of the Great Plains and people riding horses really, really well, then I would definitely say you should check out 1883. It's it's a very good series. And the first season is almost wrapped up. So it's a good one. Yeah, we're watching it. It is beautiful. It's, it's very mm-hmm. pretty. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's pretty desolate at times. I mean, there's nothing but grass as far as you can <laughs> see. But yeah, other than that, it's, it's great. <laughs> well shot. All right, Colby, how about you? Sure. I've been uh, speaking of TV shows. I've been really hooked on Ozark lately, the new mm. season. And uh, it was, I guess That's they only did one. part one of the latest season. And I didn't know that until I hit that oh. last episode. I'm like, oh. what's going on? I hate but, it when they do yeah, that. I've, it's definitely like a thematically darker series, but I've I've been really enjoying watching it. I like the storyline and um, I really like Jason Bateman. So it's been, it's a, oh, yeah. a fun watch. Yeah. yeah. It's been an amazing show and has an amazing run. Uh, all right, so my pick for this week, uh, Daishi Kato, who is a developer who I really admire, who's built a bunch of different cool state managers, including Jotai, Zushtan, Devalshio, and then I think uh, some other like smallish hook things like use Re- uh, Hook State and use Content Selector has come out with a book. Well, at least it will be a book, uh, or at least it'll come out in, I guess, March. First, I think right now. And so it's available for pre-order and it's about micro state managers. So that's on my reading list coming up, but nice little technical book for you. Cool. Nice. That sounds cool. Awesome. All right, y'all. Well, this has been really fun. I'll see you. We'll all see you next week. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Great to have you on. Yeah, big time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.